Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, this is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hope. With our world becoming ever more interconnected, my guest today, Anne-Marie Slaughter, says it's time to rethink foreign policy and governing to fit what she calls the networked age. Anne-Marie is president and CEO of New America, former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department, and former dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. She's written numerous books, including her latest, The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World, which serves as a guide for foreign policy in the modern age. Anne-Marie, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. So what is network theory, and how does that relate to foreign policy? <laughs> uh, so network theory is probably best described as the science of connection. You know, a network is any uh, group of nodes and links, and there are uh, disciplines, or there, there is theory about how networks work in math, in computer science, in economics, in sociology, industrial organization, uh, and lots of other disciplines. And what I have tried to do is to pull all that together to say to foreign policy practitioners, and that's a lot of people in the world, you know, we live in a world in which we have a lot of conflict, but we also have a huge amount of connection. Uh, and sometimes that is good connection, and sometimes it's m misconnection. The right people aren't connected, uh, and sometimes people aren't connected at all uh, in ways that are harmful. So we need to use this body of theory to develop much more strategic approaches to whom we connect and how. And before we jump into this new strategy, um, you call the current strategy uh, the chessboard view. Um, what is that uh, current strategy, and is it still useful today? The chessboard is what anyone who ever took a course on international relations or geopolitics has learned. The chessboard is the world of 194-some states, uh, although really it's the world of maybe 20 very powerful states, perhaps 50 if you, if you look region by region, because there are states that are powerful in, in specific regions who aren't so powerful on the global stage. Uh, and the world of international relations or foreign policy has been the world of how those states interact generally in strategic competition uh, and traditionally uh, in a kind of zero-sum game like chess. You know, there's one winner, and the job is to figure out how to outbox your opponent. Uh, sometimes that game is called poker or chicken, but it's, it's really a game of, uh, you know, who's going to win. Uh, in other other sort of bodies of theory, you have those states, uh, and not there doesn't have to be just one winner. You can have cooperation, of course, in that world. Uh, but what I've said is, is generally people think about foreign policy more as a strategic game uh, where the objective is to win, and that that view is still highly relevant today. 
uh, if you look at North Korea or uh, it, China or Russia or Iran or sometimes, you know, countries that we may think we're allied to, uh, like Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of chess going on <laughs> or poker or chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in the book, you um, you sort of give a, a visual to this. You say the chessboard view of the world is what you see when you look at a map with borders and highly defined regions. And then you say this, this web view is uh, what you see, say, when you look at a satellite image of, of Earth and you can see all these bright areas, which are the big cities or big urban areas, and then these sort of interconnected uh, highways and things like that. So who makes up the who makes up the web um, in in this web strategy uh, as far as foreign relations go? We do. One of the great things about the web view is uh, all the different entities that are connected. Uh, and if you look at the world really through the 20th century, certainly accelerating in the 1970s and 1980s, and then taking off dramatically with the internet, what you see is a world of corporate networks and nonprofit networks and sadly criminal networks, but also now more and more individual networks. Your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed is your customized global network. And universities, of course, network, uh, churches network, any organization or group you can think of uh, has had a growing ability to network, not just in their local environment, which they've always done, but, but uh, at a state level, at a national level, uh, regional level, and, and global level. So when we talk about the web, we're really talking about all of us and uh, this book, in large part, is designed to, to get people to think about webcraft, not statecraft, mm-hmm. and what their role is and you know what, what should those networks look like uh, if you're designing them strategically. And obviously, uh, currently, the, uh, the federal government is what's really driving um, foreign policy. Is the, is the federal government equipped at this point in time to interact on uh, on the web level? Not well enough. <laughs> uh, a great example here is actually what has happened in the last couple of months on climate change. Mm-hmm. So the, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change is largely a chessboard agreement in the sense that it's under the auspices of the United Nations and only nation states can be members of the United Nations and they come together and they sign an agreement and then they implement it. That's chessboard politics. It's strategic negotiation. Now, the Paris Agreement was unusual in that it made room for web actors. It actually said from the beginning, you know, big foundations uh, like the Gates Foundation and Bloomberg had had made a big difference in fighting climate change. Lots of non-governmental organizations had played an important role, as had business. When President Trump pulled the United States out of the Paris Agreement, that was an act of statecraft, something only the federal government could do under our Constitution. But the next day, uh, over 80 
states, mayors, university presidents, and corporate leaders said, we're banding together and talking to the United Nations about how we can fulfill commitments under the Paris Agreement. And that was an example of webcraft. Now, ideally, you'd put both together. The federal government would say, well, you know, we have our agenda, but we understand that whatever the big global problems are, from terrorism to climate to food and resource security of all kinds to global health uh, to the, to economic issues, we we don't need we really can't do it alone. We need to be able to practice webcraft as well as statecraft, and thus we should be equipped to bring all these web actors together, just like we traditionally have brought states together and work with them. But that's a view of foreign policy uh, that the federal government, I think, started to edge toward under Secretary Hillary Clinton and President Obama. Uh, but we're still, a, we're still a long way from. It's, it's sort of uh, ironic in a way, because here we have a president who's, who's very active on, on social media, um, <laughs> but it's, it's almost impossible to reach uh, him with differing opinions um, in, in any way, but um, definitely on social media, um, there's that sort of echo chamber around, I think, always around a president, but maybe more so in this case. Well, and, and he has the particular problem of uh, he acts like he wants a web world, right? He wants mm-hmm. to engage business. He thinks from a business person's perspective, <laughs> but he also wants control. And one of the things I talk about is in a hierarchy, What you know, if you're the federal government, if you're the president, if you're the secretary of state, and you control that part of the federal government that is devoted to foreign policy, you can have top-down control. You can say, we're going to do this, and we're not going to do this. Donald Trump wants that kind of control, but he uses uh, the ultimate web tools, as you said, social media, that that is the world of networks. You can't control what happens on Twitter, as he's finding out. Right? You send out these messages, and guess what? People halfway around the world hear them and get really upset, and lots of people in your own country get upset. Indeed, people in your own government get upset. So he is constantly being whipsawed between wanting old-fashioned, top-down, I'm in charge, and yet acting uh, using tools and in a world where no one can be in charge. You have to lead in a very, very different way. Yeah, so, I mean, that that brings uh, up a good point. Um, one of the things you argue for is that uh, there needs to be a level of transparency in government for these things to work. Um, what what changes need to happen um, in government in order to implement a network strategy? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> uh, well, to, you know, one thing that would just make a huge difference, which we did start at the State Department, is recognizing that government just cannot provide all the answers, that government uh, often is most effective when it uses its power of convening uh, the civic sector and the corporate sector, as well as, again, you know, the ed- educational institutions, religious institutions, all of those I think of very broadly as, as uh, part of the, the civic or at least the nonprofit sector, and that governments ought to be setting goals or at least setting aspirations and then bringing others together to, to refine those aspirations 
and then to think about, well, what can we collectively do to accomplish those goals? Again, if you were thinking just about global health, you know, where uh, the spread of a lethal virus could cause the deaths of hundreds of millions of people, you can't fight that with government. Uh, you, government has an important role to play, but you need so many different groups. Again, business, uh, obviously medical uh, groups, uh, but also civic groups. Uh, and so part of what government needs to do is not just have an office for corporate and civic outreach. Lots of people in government has thought about that. <laughs> Generally, corporations say, well, what that means is they want to set the course and they want us to pay for it. <laughs> that won't work. Uh, you, you, need, you need really to, to educate government officials very differently uh, to educate them to think that part of their role is to create networks of multiple types of, of actors. Uh, and uh, then, frankly, ideally, you would have people able to move in and out of government from the private sector and the civic sector, not just when you have political appointees. We have that in and out system, but that's only for the very top. I'm talking about civil servants and foreign servants uh, who would really have time uh, in in multiple uh, sectors. So uh, government needs to rethink how it does business and who does that business. Um, there does have to be someone setting a course. I, you know, you can't. It can't be top-down control, but neither can it be just get everybody together and and see, you know, what what people want to do. There's an art to leading uh, in that way and being effective uh, through networks. And government should should be teaching its people to think that way and to become skilled at leading that way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good another good point. Where do where do leaders? I mean, obviously, the president of the United States is one of these leaders. But you also uh, you also say that this isn't just for government. So leaders could also be CEOs or, like you said, some um, maybe on a more local level. Where do they fit in, and what what sort of uh, general characteristics would somebody need in this new way of leading? Well, part of it is, again, for people to think of themselves as part of a solution to whatever problem they are concerned with. So if you are a corporate leader, and that could be at a local level, a national level, a global level, and of course, many global CEOs run corporations that have a market cap that is many, many, many multiples of the GDP of many countries. So these are really powerful global actors, and they need to be thinking, all right, what would the solution take? Again, government clearly has a role to play, uh, but so does the private sector. If you can align the incentives right, just to take a concrete example, you know, many corporations have a real stake in the health and vitality of the people in the countries they work, because without that, they don't have a, a dependable workforce, uh, or they have a stake, for instance, in fighting corruption uh, in those countries. And I include the United States when I talk about uh, fighting corruption. So what am I going to do, say I, as a corporate leader, to uh, help address those uh, those issues. You know, you can contact civic leaders and corporate leaders uh, and and government leaders and bring people together to say, what are our goals here? And then what is the kind of network we need to achieve those goals? And I give lots of examples in the book 
of where the Gates Foundation did that around uh, making sure people around the world got their immunizations and vaccinations. Very important to all of us. Or, as I said, uh, Bloomberg and Bloomberg Philanthropies doing that with mayors uh, to fight climate change. Uh, or something like MasterCard thinking about how to create a more inclusive economy in Mexico and Romania, uh, again, and bringing together government, uh, corporate uh, leaders uh, and civic leaders. And this is something, you know, you can do at a very local level, you can do it at your state level, uh, or depending on what organizations uh, you might be leading, you can do it uh, at a national and global level. Yeah, a scale is obviously important um, in these networks. How how do you go about um, um, scaling networks to fit different needs? This is where networks are so great because the network form allows us to be small and big at the same time. If you think economically, for instance, it used to be you had a couple of businesses competing, like department stores, and they would gobble up smaller businesses uh, and become one centralized, enormous manufacturer or retail uh, store. With networks, you can keep lots of small uh, producers or sellers or civic organizations. Uh, you can keep them small, but you can have scale at impact by connecting them right and coordinating their efforts uh, in ways that still allow them to innovate but that remove lots of conflicts uh, or duplication. So the, the networks that I describe are you know, three very basic forms. You can have a, a star network. You have one central hub, and that hub is connected to lots of other uh, smaller nodes, and, and the hub directs everybody. Uh, or you can have a pod network where you actually have lots of different groups, each one of those groups, comes together and, uh, and, and works together with its own leadership, uh, but the groups are all connected to a central hub. So it's like a network of, ne of smaller networks or, or pods. Or you can have a completely distributed network, something that looks like a fishing net, where there is no hub of any kind, uh, that the goal is simply uh, to, to make sure that all the different entities that are working uh, sort of on, on similar issues uh, or that have similar ca capacities are connected. And the value of a sort of fishing net network is that it provides resilience. So if you think of a power grid, you want to make sure that if one node goes down, the electricity can, can still reach everybody else in the network uh, by, by uh, circulating a different way. Uh, and that's that's a mesh network. So you, there are different forms that perform different functions. And again, if you think strategically, this is the goal. Here are the people I need to connect. Here's how they need to be connected. And then this is how we lead uh, within that uh, framework. This is how we deploy power within that, that network. Uh, then you can accomplish uh, extraordinary things. And there's actually an interesting story behind this, right? The distribution uh, of the network sort of came about um, when they were trying to figure out how to uh, what network would be hardened best for a nuclear attack, right? Yes, it's very interesting. It goes back to the early 1960s when ex ex the the uh, our military was exactly trying to figure out a communication system that would survive a nuclear attack. 
because obviously, you know, if there were a nuclear attack somewhere, everybody else has to know. Mm-hmm. But in so many, you know, you, you obviously wouldn't ever want, uh, in that sense, a, a star network because you take out the center and everybody else is suddenly disconnected because they're not connected to each other. They're only connected to the center. So that's a disaster. <laughs> but even with the pod networks, if you took out enough of the, 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 the um, central pods, everybody else would, would be disconnected. So the only way to be sure was to build, as I said, a network that looks like a fishing net or a hammock uh, where everyone is connected to everyone else. And you practically have to take out all the different nodes before the rest of the network collapses. How could network solutions um, be applied to, say, uh, current relations with Russia, for example? Well, so Russia is a great example of a country that, on the one hand, is absolutely engaged in classic chessboard uh, (laughs) games of strategic advantage, right? The Mm -hmm. Russian government is trying to advance what it sees as Russia's national interest, and it is trying to do that (laughs) by interfering in the democracy of Western European countries and the United States by cyber attacks, by misinformation, by actual aggression uh, in countries like Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, And, you know, if I were back in government, we would certainly be thinking, how do you deter Russia? Uh, You'd be thinking about how do you cooperate with Russia on some areas where we have common interests or we purportedly do, like fighting ISIS, but also how do I I win this game? Um, At the same time, that's that's the Russian government. That's not the Russian people. Uh, just as Americans, of course, uh, we we are a very diverse, uh, a very large population of people. We are not only our government. Uh, and so there, you think about all the many Russians who have come to study at American universities. Uh, you think of I always think of chess clubs where uh, Russians are brilliant at chess, but not strategic global chess, but the actual game of chess, uh, or the, you know, the many Russians uh, who work uh, in, uh, in computer science, uh, in science generally, it's a country of very strong scientists. And what I would want to be thinking about right now, were I back in the State Department, or were I a mayor, or were I a country, uh, a business doing uh, business in Russia, how do we build those networks of people, of organizations that do have common interests. Uh, Some of that is bypassing government. Sometimes it's working at a different level of government. So sister cities, for instance, can often be a way of building a network that connects people, connects organizations, connects civic groups in ways that can do some real good, both uh, on issues of common concern or simply to build resilience when when the government the government relationship goes really sour you don't want to lose all your connections with the people i mean it's interesting i'm i'm thinking you know even just on a on a smaller scale within the united states you it seems that this would have a great it could have a very good uh impact just bridging the partisanship in government if you can find that sort of common ground 
<laughs> yes, I've been thinking a lot about applying my own theory to <laughs> a exactly a, a network that would move beyond right and left. Uh, I deeply believe that Americans are not nearly as divided uh, as the media mirror reflects uh, or the party mirror reflects, right? There are many uh, institutions that have a stake in our division. Uh, I'd like to create more institutions that have a stake in our uh, connecting and coming together. Uh, and so, uh, you know, for that, probably a pod network works best uh, where uh, you build uh, individual groups of people who have managed to cross party lines community by community, and then you connect them all together. Uh, we, now, we do that on both the left and the right. Uh, if you think about the Tea Party and the different chapters of the Tea Party, uh, or indeed Indivisible now on the left, bringing lots of people together in groups who are then connected through a central spine or a central hub, um, it would be great to think about how to do that same kind of connecting, uh, but, but on the assumption of greater unity and common purpose. You've seen it in in some of the networked protests where um, these 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 protests or these groups um, almost actively reject uh, any sort of leadership. Nobody wants to necessarily take the mantle of being the leader of the entire movement. Um, do you think that that people are predisposed to seek out a leader uh, in some instances? And if if so, how would that work um, in a web setup? Such as the 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 fishing net that you describe, where there really isn't a central uh, leader, and it's it's all very decentralized. Yes, and in, in any network, you have uh, a challenge of leadership because a network is flat. You know, I, I talk about the ladder and the web. If you're leading uh, in a ladder organization, a vertical organization, you're at the top. You have the power of command and control. If you're in a network, you're at the center. Uh, and as you say, in a mesh network, a pure mesh, mesh network, there is no center. So that, that really presents uh, challenges. But even in networks where there is a center, you don't have the power of command or control. Now, people can connect to you or not. Uh, and even if they are connected to you, you can tell them to do something, but you have no direct power over them. Uh, so you, but, but at the same time, I do think people want leadership, right? They may not all need one person who has all the power. Increasingly, particularly our younger people who've grown up in very connected ways reject that, uh, but they need leadership uh, and nothing is worse uh, than sitting around in a meeting where, you know, the effort is to get to consensus. And in that, those meetings, 80% of the people there are dying for someone to make a decision. <laughs> and, and they are, you know, it's just like, oh, please, you know, because there's a majority will and you can see what it is. And a good leader says, okay, looks to me like this is where we are. And yep, some people are going to be unhappy. But if, if you try to please everyone, you will please no one in the end. So the art to network leadership is a combination of taking that kind of power to say, yeah, you know, we're going to move forward, but doing it in a much more collaborative way 
and being willing to rotate leadership in some cases. Again, it depends on the kind of organization. Uh, and at the very least, understand on an ongoing basis that your power at the center of that web depends on how well you manage those connections. Uh, and that means you must constantly be seeking contribution and collaboration and input, while at the same time knowing, as I said, that people want to be led in the sense that they want a decision to be taken and people to move forward. One of the mistakes that network leaders often make is to substitute uh, the idea of consensus uh, for collaborative leadership. Uh, can very rarely get full consensus, uh, but you can get input and genuine collective participation. And um, so for anyone listening to this right now who may be thinking, you know, I'm just I'm just one person. What what can I do? How how can I uh, work to, to make this happen or how can I get involved? What advice would you have for somebody who may not be necessarily uh, a CEO or a, or a government official on any level who, who wants to see something like this happen? I would tell them uh, to think about the nature of power in a networked world, which is not power over others. It's power with others. And all of us have the power to gather others who are like-minded on a particular subject uh, and to bring them together and create power with. I use the example in the book of, you know, water, a couple drops, nothing, <laughs> lots and lots of drops, uh, a flood, you know, can, can sweep things away. Uh, but, but without getting revolutionary, I would say think about something you care about and that you wish you could make a difference. I would urge people to start locally uh, and think about using Nextdoor or Facebook or any number of, of technologies to try to find like-minded others, bring those like-minded others together and facilitate a conversation around, you know, we are troubled about uh, the state of the park. Or I read this morning a, a group of mothers getting together and discovering that uh, kids in their kids' classes um, had unpaid lunch bills uh, and weren't getting food. I mean, it can be any subject that you care about and figure out how to build a group that can take action. But then here, and this is critical, realize that it isn't just bringing together a group. Depending on what the nature of the problem is, you want to build a particular kind of group structure. I, I then call it a network structure. And think about, uh, all right, I've got these people. Now, if we want to make that bigger, uh, should we encourage the formation of similar groups and connect to them? Should we make our group the hub and just see how many people we can connect to? Or should we actually just take a template and say, hey, this is something that worked, you, and put it out there and try to encourage others to adopt to adopt it and, and replicate it. I always use the example of something like Alcoholics Anonymous where, or TEDx, where you have a template and any group can come together and do that. Uh, but the good news is we're in an age where you have more power than you think. And what I have, I hope, added to this debate is 
there's some science here. There's some strategy here. Uh, and I've tried to distill it in a way that anyone can use. All right. Well, the book is The Chessboard and the Web. Emery, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. I always love talking about networks. <laughs> that does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.